This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, Answer to Auschwitz, recorded May 21st, 1995, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. In the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus says, The kingdom of the Father is spread upon the earth, and men do not see it. And this is a, uh, a teaching that pops up in one form or another in every single mystical tradition. For instance, here's the Buddhist version. If one looks upon the world with eyes dimmed in ignorance, he will see it filled with error. But if he looks upon it with clear wisdom, he will see it as the world of enlightenment itself. Another way the Buddhists have of putting this is nirvana and samsara. Nirvana is the, the world of liberation, so to speak, and samsara is the world of suffering, uh, are not to be separated. This very world of suffering, if we see it properly, is nirvana. Rumi, who's a great Sufi poet and teacher, writes, When God causes a man to have knowledge of him and be familiar with him, Moment by moment, he observes the theophanies of God and his ineffable beauty from the astrolobe of his own existence. That beauty will never be absent from his mirror. In other words, realization of what this all is and of God uh, means that everything that is appears in, in consciousness is a reflection of God and is beautiful. And uh, this this teaching is even uh, encased in the in the great myths of various religions, and perhaps the most familiar to the Judaic Christian uh, uh, tradition, both traditions, is the uh, what God says after He finishes creation, and after His seven days of creating all the stuff, and He looks it over, and in Hebrew the word is katova. He says katova, it is good. And I often say, you know, he didn't say, well, it's good except for those mosquitoes. I don't know. I shouldn't have. Maybe that was a mistake or something. It's, it's, it's a blanket statement. It covers everything. And so the whole problem of, the, uh, of our problem of suffering arises not from anything that's inherent in creation, but from some defect in our experience. That's what the whole story of the fall is about. If we could but see things properly we would see that it's all good. And, of course, in the Christian uh, and Jewish tradition, God is good, and so everything God does has to be good. But this presents, then, a tremendous problem for us when we are suffering from delusion. Because if everything is good, how do we account for evil in the world? And we can think of all sorts of uh, different sorts of evil things that happen. Little innocent children get leukemia and die. Seems inexplicable. Is that good? Is that katova? Is that the world of enlightenment itself? And then there's crime, and there's war. And if we look, at least in our experience in this century, uh, and if we want to investigate this, let us look into the most horrendous thing we can think of. And probably for most people, uh, for this century anyway, it would be Nazi Germany and what happened in Nazi Germany, in the Holocaust. It's almost inconceivable to us how such evil could be uh, perpetrated. How many people here saw Schindler's List? Everybody, you haven't seen Schindler's mm-hmm. List. Well, I assume everybody knows about the Holocaust. I mean, there are people, amazingly, that don't. Um, and so here comes a real test for these teachings. If we consider Hitler, and we consider the Nazis, and we consider the concentration camps and the death camps, and this systematic, mechanized murder of six million people, and the tremendous horror and suffering in there, can we still say it's Katova? Can we still say God is good, creation is good? Can we still see that this world itself is the world of enlightenment? That God's beauty is never absent from our mirror? That this is really the kingdom of God spread upon the earth? 
Is that possible? This is a question that has come up often in uh, teachings that I've given here. People have raised this. Well, what about the Nazis? What about the death camps and so forth? And I cannot and have never been able to answer that question uh, truly from my own experience. I wasn't there. And uh, I know enough being a veteran of Vietnam that it's very difficult to understand situations like that unless you were there. And what I experienced in Vietnam is a drop in the bucket compared to what went on in those concentration camps. So I've never been able to give uh, an authentic answer. I, I can only give an answer out of faith. But I have found somebody who can answer this question. A mystic. Her name is Eddie Hillesom, and she died in Auschwitz on the 30th of November, 1943. But she left behind, fortunately for us, some diaries that she wrote up until that period. It's an absolutely essential story, I feel, for especially for our time. It is the answer to this question about Auschwitz. She gives the answer to this question. So what I wanted to do today is wanted to give you a, a kind of synopsis, a, a capsulized version, uh, mostly from her own words. I'm going to do a lot of reading from her diaries. And just because I think it's so important to, to have her story known, at least, uh, every once in a while I run into what I consider a really great mystic. And it's not, it's not a difference of their realization or anything. It's a difference of sometimes their, the way they can express things. Simone Weil has this marvelous way. Simone Weil, I'm sorry, I should say, uh, has this marvelous uh, way of putting uh, mystical truths in a very quite contemporary and quite intellectual sort of way. Uh, and Ramana Maharshi, for instance, is a mystic who puts things very purely and very directly and simply. And then sometimes we run across a mystic who is it's not so much the elegance or eloquence of their speech or the, the sophistication of the teaching, but the great example they set. And I don't know anybody else in this century anyway who set such an example as she did. So let me begin by giving you a little of her background, which is quite simple. She was born in 1914 to a family of highly assimilated Dutch Jews. As far as I know, as can tell from the diaries, they weren't practicing religious, the Jewish religion at all. Uh, her father was a headmaster at a, uh, a large municipal school in a, in a middle-sized city called Deventer in Holland. Uh, and of course, in Europe, headmasters and professors and so forth have far more respect than they do in this country, so it's quite a, a high status to have. Eddie went to uh, the University of Amsterdam in 1932, and she earned a degree in law, and then she went on to study uh, Slavonic and particularly the Russian language. And uh, she mixed with uh, a very cosmopolitan intellectual set of people in Amsterdam. It was a very cosmopolitan life. Uh, there were no barriers from the fact that she was Jewish. There was no anti-Semitism, at least in the circle she moved in. And she was uh, leading this life after she graduated from uh, the university. She started tutoring in Russian. That's how she made her living. In 1940, the Germans occupied Holland. From the late 30s, they were starting to take over countries around them. They moved into Holland and eventually, of course, France and took over all of Europe. But in the first year of their occupation, not too much changed. Uh, there were some minor restrictions on the Jews and so forth, but life went on more or less as it had been before. Of course, now politics became a big part of the conversation of everybody. Uh, and the uh, and everybody was aware somewhat of what was happening to the Jews in Germany, that they were already being persecuted and rounded up and so forth. But um, it wasn't really clear that this was going to happen in Holland yet. It still seemed to be something distant. It was happening in another country. There were some Jews coming from uh, Germany who had come from Germany to escape the persecution there who had settled in Holland. But in any case, Eddie was at that time 27 years old, she was living in a kind of a boarding house with uh, a great variety of people, and she was not much concerned with the Germans. It was something going on in the world, but uh, it was something rather peripheral. Let me read you the uh, opening paragraph of her diary. Here goes, then. She's starting her diary. 
This is a painful and well-nigh insuperable step for me, yielding up so much that has been suppressed to a blank sheet of lined paper. The thoughts in my head are sometimes so clear and so sharp, and my feelings so deep, but writing about them comes hard. The main difficulty, I think, is a sense of shame. So many inhibitions, so much fear of letting go, of allowing things to pour out of me, and yet that is what I must do if I am ever going to give my life a reasonable and satisfactory purpose. It is like the final liberating scream that always sticks bashfully in your throat when you make love. I am accomplished in bed, just about seasoned enough, I should think, to be counted among the better lovers, and love does indeed suit me to perfection. And yet it remains a mere trifle, set apart from what is truly essential, and deep inside me something is still locked away. The rest of me is like that too. I am blessed enough with intellectually to be able to fathom most subjects, to express myself clearly in most things. I seem to be a match for most of life's problems, and yet deep down something like a tightly wound ball of twine binds me relentlessly, and at times I am nothing more or less than a miserable, frightened creature, despite the clarity with which I can express myself. You see where her concerns are lying here. She's a young woman. She's concerned about what her life's purpose is going to be. She's concerned about, she wants to be a writer, she says, and a poet. She's concerned about developing these powers. She's quite pr proud of her love life. You would never think that this is a, a, someone in here who's going to turn out to be one of the great mystics and saints of the 20th century. And it's very important to, for us to know this. She's quite an ordinary young woman, given her uh, time and place. She does have this sense, though, that something's not quite right. And this, this, she talks about this, something's tightly bound up inside her, and it makes her frightened and anxious, and, uh, and she doesn't even quite know what it is. In any case, she busies herself in this first year of the German occupation, basically 1941, uh, reading Rilke and translating Dostoevsky. She translates The Idiot, or she makes lots of attempts to. She's also not very disciplined, as we'll see later, and she's always trying to become more disciplined in her, in her life. And, and then she meets, or she's just met before the diary begins, she's just met this rather interesting character called Julius Speer. He was 54 years old, and he had studied uh, with Jung in Zurich, and he was uh, a Jew, and now he was a little bit on the run, and he was a stateless person, but he had ended up in Amsterdam. And apparently he was quite a charismatic sort of character. And this is also, I, this struck me anyway, is also modern. He would fit in very well today in the human growth potential movement, the human potential movement, you know. Uh, he developed his own uh, sort of therapy, which he called psychochirology, and apparently he was really quite good. He used things like palm reading and, and wrestling, and he worked with energies, uh, but he apparently could read people very well. He would sit down and talk to somebody, and there's one uh, passage where she talks about going to uh, uh, some bureaucracy, and he just uh, he looked at this little clerk, and he reads his hand, but really he's, I think, reading his whole body, character, and so forth. And he just gives this, you know, 15-minute uh, uh, or 10-minute analysis, and the guy's so impressed he joins his therapy, you know. And he established this little circle, and he was sort of the therapist to them, and also a kind of an intellectual leader, and also a spiritual leader. He had picked up the spiritual side of Jung, and he believed in God, not the God of religions, uh, formal religions, but this inner God and so forth. Um, and anyway, he made a big impression on... Uh, on Eddie, and she joined his uh, circle, his therapy. He made a big impression on her two ways. One is she fell in love with him and she started an affair with him. And the other is that he encouraged her spiritual growth. For instance, uh, this is one little thing she writes about this. Last night, shortly before going to bed, I suddenly went down on my knees in the middle of this large room between the steel chairs and the matting. Almost automatically, forced to the ground by something stronger than myself. Some time ago, I said to myself, I am a kneeler in training. I was still embarrassed by this act, as intimate as gestures of love that cannot be put into words either, except by a poet. 
A patient once said to Spear, I sometimes have the feeling that God is right inside me, for instance, when I hear the St. Matthew Passion. And Spear said something like, at such moments you are completely at one with the creative and cosmic forces that are at work in every human being. And these creative forces are ultimately part of God, but you need courage to put them in, to put that into words. This phrase has been ringing in my ears for several weeks. You need courage to put that into words. The courage to speak God's name, Spear once said to me, that it took quite a long time before he dared to say God, without feeling that there was something ridiculous about it. Even though he was a believer, and he said he prayed every night, prayed for others. Notice this. This may be uh, uh, relate to your own experience. You know, this idea to be able to just speak speak about God seriously in front of other people can be kind of embarrassing, you know. To actually get down on your knees and pray can be a tremendous practice. It, it can bring out a lot of uh, a sense of self-consciousness and so forth. And you can see here the kind of influence he's having on her. She's already writing about Spear says this and Spear says that. And, and he's intriguing her. He's getting her interested in what is this God, this creative force, how is it linked together, what is prayer, and so forth. But the other kinds of uh, things that fill the first 50 or so pages of this diary, she writes about things like uh, she's very interested in how uh, menstruation affects her moods, and she notices how every month her moods suddenly change, and uh, and then how to cope with that. She ponders about love, because uh, Spear is um, engaged to another woman who lives in London. He can't be with her because he can't travel, but after the war he plans to marry her, and he tries to remain faithful, and you get the impression that Eddie, or she says she didn't help him very much, and she really went after him, and she got him. She was really falling quite in love with him, very deeply in love with him, and she ponders this whole thing. How can you give yourself in love to a person completely and yet maintain your independence, not be overwhelmed by them. <clears throat> and then finally she writes about, um, or she's concerned about the ethics of sleeping with two men because she's been sleeping with this other guy at the boarding house and here she's sleeping with Spear as well. And then there's one period where she visits her family and she writes about her mother. Now let me read you this one because I think some of you will be able to relate to this. Stop whining for goodness sake, you shrew, you nag, carrying on like that. Such are my inner reactions when my mother sits down to have a chat with me. My mother is someone who would try the patience of a saint. I do my best to look at her objectively, and I, and I try to be fond of her, but then suddenly I'll find myself saying emphatically, what a ridiculous and silly person you are. <laughs> it's so wrong of me. I don't live here, after all. And I'm just allowed myself to vegetate, and I put off my life until I have gone again. She's on a visit. Has anybody ever had that reaction to going on to visit your mother? <laughs> anyway, I, I want to just give you this impression that this woman was not born a saint. There's some, you know, people are. There's some saints, great famous saints, who from the time they were children, they knew they were going to be saints, and there's stories about them as children. She has all the concerns that, um, that at least as far as I know, talking to uh, young women or uh, in this culture have. But her spiritual growth does uh, start to take off, start to take root. She writes, a desire to kneel down sometimes pulses through my body, or rather it is as if my body has been meant and made for the act of kneeling. Sometimes, in moments of deep gratitude, kneeling down becomes an overwhelming urge, head deeply bowed, hands before my face. When I write these things down, I feel a little ashamed, as if I were writing about the most intimate of intimate matters, much more bashful than if I had to write about my love life. But is there indeed anything as intimate as man's relationship to God? So she's still got this sense of embarrassment and so forth, but you can see that this is uh, taking hold. The spiritual life is beginning to grow in her. And she begins to learn. She says, As the emphasis shifts increasingly to the inner life, so one grows less and less dependent on circumstances. I may be writing this in great comfort, but there is something inside me, tough and indestructible, that tells me I shall be able to bear different circumstances too. 
And we get a little shadow of this sort of uh, intimation she has that all this is going to change. And it's very important, by the way, in her life, you can see, that her spiritual life is one step ahead of what's all this that's going to happen to her. Uh, it's not a result of what happens to her. She she cultivates this first, and this is very important to us. We never know what's going to happen to us. So it's not like this is all a reaction, a sudden battlefield conversion. She's already beginning to this, but she's already has intimations of what's coming ahead. Well, then uh, almost a year later from the time she starts her diary, in uh, April of 1942, suddenly things get rough in, in Amsterdam. The Jews are required to wear yellow stars. The restrictions increase. They Suddenly they can't uh, shop in certain shops. Uh, they can't ride the trolleys. They can't ride bicycles. There are cafes they can't go to. And uh, she writes about she and Speer take these walks. Uh, and, you know, they used to just walk down the boulevard and stop in a cafe. Well, suddenly they can't because they're Jewish. In traveling, uh, the Jews that have jobs, for instance, if you worked, let's say if you lived here and worked over at the university, uh, I guess there weren't that many private cars at the time. You'd either take a trolley or a bike. Well, suddenly you're not allowed to. You have to work, walk now in all weather, summer and winter, to the university and back. I mean, there, there are little things here at first, but you can see two things. They, they, they definitely are uncomfortable and a, a nuisance and annoyance, but it's also this tremendous sense of humiliation of being singled out, you know. She describes once going to a shop to buy something and walking out and just this ordinary, not even a, a Nazi in uniform, this ordinary citizen comes up. Everybody knows she's Jewish, of course, because she's got the star and says, are you allowed to buy that? And she has to say yes, sir, and show him her ration, her permission book or whatever, you know, that she can buy this, you know. And then also the deportations to the camps begin. Uh, and at first they begin by people getting, Jews getting orders to report to these supposedly labor camps that are sort of being called up to perform labor for the Reich. That's the way it was presented. And so uh, people she knows start getting called up and, you know, start being shipped off. And this is the beginning sort of one at a time, not big groups yet. But by April, so this is in April, all this is taking place, she writes that she prays now. She's praying regularly. She's, this is how she prays. Lord, help me not waste a drop of my energy on fear and anxiety, but grant me all the resilience I need to bear this day. German soldiers were already drilling at the skating club, so I also prayed, God, do not let me dis dissipate my strength, not the least little bit of strength, on useless hatred against these soldiers. Let me save my strength for better things. Now, listen, this is quite remarkable. She's already wandering around with a Jewish star. She's already knows people are being deported off to labor camps. Uh, and, and her own spiritual life is only a year old. And she's already uh, has this sense of realizing that if she allows herself to fall into this hatred and bitterness, it's going to destroy everything. Then in June, she writes, We may, of course, be sad and depressed by what has been done to us. That is only human and understandable. However, our great inner injury is one we inflict upon ourselves. I find life beautiful and I feel free. The sky within me is as wide as the one stretching above my head. I believe in God, and I believe in man, and I say so without embarrassment. Now look how much she's changed in a year. When she started off this hesitant, she was even afraid to say God's name, and now she's boldly proclaiming it. So her confidence is really growing here, her spiritual confidence. And at this point, uh, people still believe that these labor camps are labor camps, that they are being uh, drafted to go work. In, and they realize the conditions are bad and they're going to be like in barracks and so forth. But they don't yet really realize that these are death camps. Rumors are just beginning to circulate in uh, about what's really going on. And it's very hard for them to believe at first. And you can see why, from their point of view, it doesn't even make sense that the Germans would kill them. Why not use them as slave labor? I mean, what's the point of just killing them? So it's a very hard thing to accept. Not, not just a hard thing to accept that you're marked for destruction, but it's so irrational. But by July, it starts to really become obvious what the Nazis intend. 
Now rumors are really coming back that if there isn't actual murders going on in these camps, it's so horrendous, many people are dying, they're sent off, they disappear, no letters come back from them, and so forth. The restrictions are increasing, and things are getting much worse. And here's what, this has becomes a big turning point in her life. She writes, I must admit a new insight into my life and find a place for it. What is at stake is our impending destruction and annihilation. We can have no more illusions about that. They are out to destroy us completely. We must accept that and go on from there. Very well then. This new certainty that what they are after is our total destruction, I accept it. And then within the next few days, her journal, these are entries compacted in her journal in the next few days. She continues. This has been my first real confrontation with death. I never knew what to make of it before. I had such a virginal attitude towards it. I have never seen a dead person. Just imagine a world sown with a million corpses, and in 27 years I have never seen a single one. I have often wondered what my attitude to death really is. I never delved deeply into the question. Now again, how this is so much like us. You know, especially when, well, you start getting over 40 or 50 and you start thinking about it more. But when you're young, you don't ever think about it. Now events are starting to catch up with her life. She's starting to have to face things squarely in the face. Now her death is not something that's, you know, when she's old and gray, but it, it's, it may be quite imminent. So uh, once she delves into the question, what happens? The reality of death has become a definite part of my life. My life has, so to speak, been extended by death, by my looking death in the eye and accepting it, by accepting the destruction as part of life and no longer wasting my energies on fear or death or the refusal to acknowledge its inevitability. It sounds paradoxical. By excluding death from our life, we cannot have a full life. And by admitting death into our life, we enlarge and enrich it. You know, this is exactly what happened with the Buddha. You remember the Buddha's story? He was led this sheltered life. He never thought about death, never delved into the question, never thought about it. And then he goes outside his palace and he meets the old person, the, the, the um, diseased person, and, and he sees a corpse for the first time like her. And this is a big shock to him. My gosh, I'm going to die. His whole path becomes how to deal with this fact. And he writes, uh, you know, at this point, oh, you heedless worldly people, don't you know it's all coming to death? This is something in a spiritual path that has to be dealt with. It's an absolutely crucial thing. And her ability to accept this, to see this, to accept this uh, as, as in inevitable, whether they're Nazis or not, part of life, gave this tremendous turnaround in her path and her practice. Okay, then as uh, this truth began to dawn on the Jews in Amsterdam, what was going on, and the Nazis began to increase their deportations and so forth, the people started to panic, you know. They started looking around every possible way to save themselves, going into hiding, trying to get, you know, bribe their way out of the country, and trying to uh, get in privileged positions and so forth. And Eddie's friends urged her to try to save herself. And Eddie was in a very good position, by the way. She had all these Gentile friends, Christian friends, who supported her. She wasn't a poor Jew living in the ghetto. She was living right there in the, you know, the mainstream of Amsterdam life. And here's, uh, here's Eddie's reply to her friends. Many accuse me of indifference and passivity when I refuse to go into hiding. They say I have given up. They say everyone who can must try to stay out of their clutches. They're the Nazis' clutches. It's our bounden duty to try. But that argument is specious. For while everyone tries to save himself, vast numbers are nevertheless disappearing. And the funny thing is, I don't feel I'm in their clutches anyway. Whether I stay or am sent away, I don't feel it in anybody's clutches. I feel safe in God's arms. And no matter whether I am sitting at this beloved old desk now, or in a bare room in the Jewish district, or perhaps in a labor camp under SS guard in a month's time, I shall always feel safe in God's arms. Now, she's still in a room in this boarding house. She's got her desk. She's got her books around her and so forth. 
saying this, you know, is a sign of great confidence, but it's something to be tested. You know, it's easy to say that when you're sitting around in a room surrounded by your uh, comforts. And sometimes we ourselves fall into that. We say, oh, yes, if the Nazis came here, I would be willing to stand up to them. I'd be willing to uh, fight for uh, justice and all that. And we don't really know until we're tested. But there is this confidence in her, this building, building spiritual confidence. Very important to notice this all comes out of her spiritual life. It's not something that comes out of her, her personal will or her strength of character. Now, finally, under her friend's insistence, she applied to, the, to work at the Jewish Council. The Jewish Council was set up by the Nazis basically to help organize this mass murder. Uh, that many Jews didn't realize it at the time. And to be on the Jewish council meant you were safe, you were exempt. You got an exemption from going to these death camps. So everybody wanted to be on the, on the Jewish council. And it was, you know, quite a, a, a privilege to get on it. And it took a lot of pull. And, and Eddie's friends had that kind of pull and so forth. And they got her on it. And she went to work for two weeks with the, with the Jewish council. And she hated it. She realized what was going on. She realized that this was a cop-out. Uh, and that in a way she was saving her skin, and she also realized that this was really that they were just doing the Nazis' bidding. And then in July also the, the mass deportations begin, the street roundups, where they would just go through the du Jewish district and just, you know, uh, round up everybody they could and ship them off. And when she saw that happening, she realized she couldn't just work on the Jewish Council anymore. In fact, she volunteered to go to Westerbork, which was the concentration camp in the east of Holland where all the, the uh, Dutch Jews were being assembled to be shipped off to the death camps in Poland, Auschwitz and so forth. And she volunteered herself to go and work in the hospital there. And she did. And as a volunteer, she still had this exemption. She was allowed to return to Amsterdam like on leave, unlike the other Jews who were, who were inmates in this, in this camp. So she still had a kind of privileged position. So she went back and forth uh, quite a number of times over the next year or so. And sometimes she writes in Westerbork, and sometimes she writes back in uh, her room back in Amsterdam. She kept a room in the house. She, they kept it for her. Uh, her diaries are always written back in a room. She didn't take her diaries to, to Westerbork. She has let, but they're letters from Westerbork. So here she's writing now after having been in the death camp. Well, not the death camp. These aren't death camps. They're still horrendous places, but they, these weren't the extermination camps. It was, the, it was the last stop. How is it that this stretch of heathland, surrounded by barbed wire, through which so much human misery has flooded, nevertheless remains inscribed in my memory as something almost lovely? How is it that my spirit, far from being oppressed, seemed to grow lighter and lighter there? Is it because I read the signs of the times and they did not seem meaningless to me? Surrounded by my writers and poets and the flowers on my desk, I loved life. And there, among the barracks, full of hunted and persecuted people, I found confirmation for my love of life. Life in those drafty barracks was no other than the life in this protected, peaceful room. Not for one moment was I cut off from this life I was said to have left behind. There was simply one great meaningful whole. Now that's remarkable. That's a woman who's already been in this concentration camp and who's now comparing and, and seeing and where everybody else feels their lives are being interrupted, their lives are being destroyed and so forth. She's beginning to see beyond this duality. She's beginning to see this Life is one whole, a whole piece of cloth, and that it's all meaningful. And then a month or so after she'd been in Westerbork, Speer died, suddenly got ill and died. He, was, he had not yet gone to the camp. He was still in Amsterdam, and she got leave, and she went back. And this was a tremendous blow to her. And she doesn't, there's a gap in her diaries where all this is happening, and then she goes back and writes about it. And you get the sense, though, that two things. One is that she had actually, in a certain sense, surpassed her teacher. She writes about him when he was sick and, and dying, and that uh, she saw him as kind of breaking down a little bit. And it also, in a certain sense, gave her this this freedom. She no longer had her teacher. She was going to be her own teacher from now on. Uh, that spiritual life had taken such root, she didn't need anybody else. She, we would say, found the inner teacher, if you like. 
But she writes, I now realize, God, how much you have given me, so much that was beautiful and so much that was hard to bear. Yet whenever I showed myself ready to bear it, the hard was directly transformed into the beautiful. This is very important. We've talked about this a lot, especially recently around the center. Transforming suffering, not getting rid of it, not denying it, but how do you work with suffering? Transform it. And she says the secret. The instant I was ready to bear it, the instant I was ready to surrender, to accept it, it was transformed directly into the beautiful. And the beautiful was sometimes much harder to bear. So overpowering did it seem to me. To think that one small human heart can experience so much, oh God, so much suffering and so much love. I am so grateful to you, God, for having chosen my heart in these times to experience all these things it has experienced. That's remarkable, isn't it? For somebody in a concentration camp. Remarkable. Anyway... Uh, then she writes a lot about what goes on at uh, Westerbork. And uh, it, as I said, it wasn't a death camp, but it was still a horrendous place. I'm just going to give you some examples and not read them all to you. Uh, one is that there were these weekly transports. Every week a train would leave and a thousand Jews from the, from the camp would then be shipped off. And by now everybody knew, knew where they were going. And they were packed in these cattle cars uh, and they were given one bucket to shit in in the middle of the car. That was the only convenience, only anything in the car that was boarded up, and they were, for three days, they were in this car. That was it. And her, the scenes that she writes, this last minute, this roundup, and the scrambling for people to get exemptions and get out, and the panic and the horror, is just horrendous. She describes one incident where this uh, teenage boy, 14, I think he was, panics the last minute he's going to be sent, and he runs to try to hide, and the punishment is that now 50 extra Jews are going to go because you're not allowed as a Jew to, to panic and to, you know, try to escape. And then she talks, she meets, working in the hospital, all these Gestapo victims who've come to the camp after being in the hands of the Gestapo. Some of them have been so badly manhandled, they can't be transported to the death camp yet. They have to stay in the hospital until they recover enough to be transported, if they do. And one of the most uh, horrendous and almost amusing, I mean, it's, it's so bizarre, these, uh, some people would come to the camp with criminal records. And little kids, four or five years old, would come with criminal records and they would have to stay in the punishment barracks. And she was in the hospital and there's the little nursery when there, there were orphans, infants now. And this nine month old baby was there. And during the day, all the, the infants would be taken out to get a little fresh air, put outside for a while and taken back. And this baby wasn't allowed out. And she asked why? Well, it had a criminal record. And so its punishment was it couldn't go out with the other babies. I mean, this is the kind of, you know, it's hard to imagine this sort of uh, insanity. And at this point, uh, Eddie would still travel back to Amsterdam, and her friends were pleading with her. And at one point, they tried to kidnap her to so she, not to go back to Westerbork, because they realized eventually she was going to go. And she refused. I mean, she wouldn't be kidnapped, and she got away from them, and she always went back. But she writes... It still comes down to the same thing. Life is beautiful, and I believe in God, and I want to be there right in the thick of what people call horror and still be able to say, life is beautiful. And now here I lie in some corner, dizzy and feverish and unable to do a thing. When I woke up just now, I was parched and reached for a glass of water and grateful for that one sip, thought to myself, if I could only be there to give some of those packed thousands just one sip of water. Sometimes I might sit down beside someone, put an arm around a shoulder, say very little and just look into their eyes. Nothing was alien to me, not one single expression of human sorrow. Everything seemed so familiar to me, as if I knew it all and gone through it all before. People said to me, you must have nerves of steel to stand up to it. I don't think I have nerves of steel, far from it, but I can certainly stand up to things. I am not afraid to look suffering straight in the eye. And at the end of each day, there is always the feeling I love people so much. Never any bitterness about what has been done to them, but always love for those who knew how to bear such so much, although nothing had prepared them for such burdens. You know, this is astonishing to me. 
if when we sit and think about where she's writing this and what's going on, then finally she loses her exemption status. She becomes an inmate, and now she's definitely bound for Auschwitz, and she knows it. And yet still, this is how she prays. You have made me so rich, O oh God. Please let me share out your beauty with open hands. My life has become one uninterrupted dialogue with you, O oh God. One great dialogue. Sometimes when I stand in some corner of this camp, my feet planted on your earth, my eyes raised towards your heaven, tears sometimes run down my face. Tears of deep emotion and gratitude. At night, too, when I lie in my bed and rest in you, O oh God, tears of gratitude run down my face. I have been terribly tired for several days, but that too will pass. Things come and go in a deeper rhythm, and people must be taught to listen to it. It is the most important thing we have to learn in this life. How can you be in a concentration camp and tears of gratitude run down your face? remarkable. Now listen to what she said at the end. This is the most important thing for us. Things come and go in a deeper rhythm, and people must be taught to listen to it. It is the most important thing we have to learn in this life. This is this rhythm, this, this sense of the divine underneath the, the, you know, the, our likes and dislikes, our joys and sorrows. This is really beginning to understand that transcendence of duality, that underneath all this if we could but see it, is still the kingdom of God. And it's, she speaks of it in terms of this rhythm that we have to be able to, to listen for, to tap into. Then she writes, People sometimes say, You must try to make the best of things. I find this such a feeble thing to say. Everywhere things are both very good and very bad at the same time. The two are in balance everywhere and always. I never have the feeling that I have got to make the best of things. Everything is fine just the way it is. Oh, now she's reached the point where she's saying, you know, okay, everything is fine just the way it is. She sees that the hand of God in all this, underneath all this. After a year in Westerbork, finally Eddie and her family, by the way, her family was now all rounded up and ended up at Westerbork too. They finally get the orders to be transported. And uh, then a friend writes a letter describing that day back to her friends in Amsterdam, which is still preserved. And he talks about on the way to the trains, uh, you know, she's with her family, but she stops to help all these other people and she gets separated from her family because of it. And she gets shoved in another cattle car and so forth. Up to the very end, she's not thinking of herself. She's thinking of others. And then the last thing we have from her is as she was, as they were leaving, going out on these cars, she wrote a postcard to her friends in Amsterdam, and she pushed it out of the window, not the window, but the slats in the cattle car, and some farmers picked it up, and they sent it back to her, her uh, friends in Amsterdam. They delivered it, and it just says, We left the camp singing. So the question is, what's her secret? This is a true 20th century saint and a great mystic. But what's her secret? How did she find happiness even in a concentration camp? Well, I think I, now it comes to the teaching part. Four principles. First, she paid attention. Truly, my life is one long hearkening unto myself and unto others and unto God. Hearkening, listening, paying attention. My life is one long hearkening unto myself and unto others and unto God. And, I, and if I say that I hearken, it is really God who hearkens inside me. The most essential and deepest in me hearkening unto the most essential and deepest in the other. God to God. It's all about paying attention, hearkening, listening, observing, inquiring at a deep level, at a level beyond thought and so forth, at the deepest possible level. Then commitment. Our second principle. Here's what she has to say about it. Life is hard, but that is not a bad thing. If one starts by taking one's own importance seriously, the rest follows. 
We carry everything within us, God and heaven and hell and earth and life and death and all of history. The externals are simply so many props. Everything we need is within us. And we have to take everything that comes, the bad with the good, which does not mean we cannot devote our life to curing the bad. But we must know what motives inspire our struggle, and we must begin with ourselves every day anew. This commitment every day, this examining our motives, and not taking uh, adversity as to be something uh, that, that interrupts our practice, but making it grist for our mill. All right, our third principle, detachment. What does she say about it? With each moment that passes, I shed more wishes and desires and attachments. There are moments when I can see right through life and the human heart, when I understand more and more and become calmer and calmer, and am filled with a faith in God which has grown so quickly inside me that it frightened me at first but has now become inseparable from me. Detachment. From what? Personal wishes and desires. Listen to all the mystics teach. This, this, see, she didn't discover anything else. She just applied what everyone teaches. Now, detachment, notice it's very important. Detachment does not mean uh, turning off to the suffering around you or becoming invulnerable, emotionally invulnerable. And she is the most, the greatest example of this. She drinks in everything around her. And yet, this is the true practice of detachment. It's detachment from self, from all your petty self-concerns and so forth. At one point in her diaries, and I, I just read you just a few little gems, believe me, that I had to uh, select hard. There was so much I wanted to read, and I realized this is a limited <laughs> morning here. She writes about uh, uh, when her friends are asking her and begging her to try to save herself, and she looks around, and she sees people who are saving themselves, but what are they saving? They're saving a bundle of fear and bitterness and hatred and anxiety. It's not worth saving to her if that's what it's going to be, all this self-concern and so forth. And she takes the opposite attitude. And then finally, the last and great principle, surrender. This much I know. You have to forget your own worries for the sake of others. You must learn to forgo all personal desires and to surrender completely. And surrender does not mean giving up the ghost, fading away with grief, offering what little assistance I can wherever it has pleased God to place me. That's, here you go. These are the four principles. And she discovered them. And, you know, she didn't have a lot of, you know, great teachings and so forth. She had, I guess, the great teacher was life itself for her. So what can she teach us now? Aside from the fact that to apply these principles in our own lives, which we talk about over and over here. But here's some just, I want to conclude with just some general things, which all of you will recognize, by the way, from all the great teachings of the mystics, about facing reality. What does she have to say? Things ought to be called by their proper name. If they can't stand it, they have no right to be. We try to save so much in life with a vague sort of mysticism. But true mysticism must rest on crystal clear honesty, can only come after things have been stripped down to their naked reality. Don't I always say this and quote you from other mystics about mystics not about running away from life. It's about facing life, facing reality with a, with this sort of honesty, with no romanticism and sentimentality and this, this vague sort of mysticism. You know, it's easy for us to have this vagueness about when things are nice and it's a beautiful spring day and the, and the plants are coming up. And then, oh yes, then we can appreciate God's creation. Do you know what I mean? But a lot of that appreciation comes from our turning away from the suffering and evil. We don't like to look at it. We don't like to uh, watch the news or read the papers about that. It interrupts our little false sense of security and uh, beauty and so forth. But if you're going to find the true, the real beauty, you have to go into that suffering. You have to accept it and face it in its worst aspects. 
And here's a woman who can speak about that authoritatively. What does she say about what I call the metaphorical world, the imagination, the world that our uh, thoughts construct for us? Most people carry a stereotyped ideas about life in their heads. We have to rid ourselves of all preconceptions, of all slogans, of all sense of security, find the courage to let go of everything, every standard, every conventional bulwark. Only then will life become infinitely rich and overflowing, even in the suffering it deals out to us. Isn't this what all mystics say? And I want you to check this against, you know, we have to go beyond thought, beyond the uh, imagination, beyond all the security that that world of thought gives us. We have to be able to let it all go. Now you find reality beyond that. Even such words as God and death and suffering and eternity are best forgotten. We have to become as simple and as wordless as the growing corn or the falling rain. That's pure Zen. That's pure Zen. About morality. What does she have to say? We have so much work to do in ourselves that we shouldn't even be thinking about hating our so-called enemies. <laughs> then she says, ultimately, we have just one moral duty, to reclaim large areas of peace in ourselves, more and more peace, and to reflect it towards others. And the more peace there is in us, the more peace there will be in our troubled world. Now, this is something that... Uh, you know, whenever something like Nazism arises and so forth, this is a, one of the first things that goes. People say, well, now's not the time to work on yourself. Now's not the time to go on a spiritual path. We have to fight these Nazis. We have to defend ourselves, you know, and this and that and so forth. People get uh, outraged and indignant and whatnot. And yet all our great spiritual teachers tell us, no. It's our duty. It's our really our duty to find that peace within ourselves because if there's any hope for world peace, that's the only place it's going to come from. And we should never feel ashamed about working on ourselves and we should never be tempted and feel that somehow we're negating life. In one version of the Buddha's three temptations under the Bodhi tree just before his enlightenment, uh, first, Myra, the, the god of delusion, uh, sends the armies of demon sons to scare him off, and that doesn't work, and he sends his uh, troop of uh, sensuous daughters to lure him off, and that doesn't work. And the third temptation, he says, what are you doing here sitting under the Bodhi tree contemplating your navel? You have responsibilities in the world. You're the son of a royal family. You're a prince, and so forth. And he refuses to yield to that temptation. It's interesting it's put as a temptation. And Jesus said the same thing. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And if you don't, if you, if you act too, uh, uh, quickly in the world, uh, and jump to a chance, uh, you know, to, to fight all these causes without having done this work on yourself, without having, as she has said, examine your real motives for doing this, you will end up causing more harm than good. And I'll speak from experience on that one, when I was a Maoist revolutionary in the 60s. You will. You will feel self-righteous, but if you haven't found that spiritual well inside, then that'll quickly get perverted by all your selfish angers and hatreds and so forth. About non-duality, here's what Eddie has to say. Living and dying, sorrow and joy, the blisters on my feet and the jasmine behind the house, the persecution, the unspeakable horrors. It is all as one in me, and I accept it all as one mighty whole, and begin to grasp it better, if only for myself, without being able to explain it to anyone else how it all hangs together. This is this, you know, all mystics talk about that, going beyond duality, seeing, seeing beyond duality, seeing the whole, seeing the unity of all things, the oneness. And and this means, yes, even when the Nazis are around, even in the midst of all these unspeakable horrors. And then here's what she says about the path. 
after the initial struggles. And she writes about struggling with her own fears, by the way, and her own anxieties and her own concerns. She, at one point in her diary, she talks about those little fleas that keep jumping on her. She keeps having to sort of try to get them off. But then she says, Once you have begun to walk with God, you need only keep on walking with him. And all of life becomes one long stroll. Such a marvelous feeling. This is written from a concentration camp. Now, what about the more uh, technical things? About insight into delusion. You know, if you don't have the inner strength to understand that all outer appearances are a passing show, as nothing beside the great splendor inside us, then things can look very black here indeed. Now, people say, oh, mystics talk about it's all delusion. Is, is there, are the death camps delusion? Is that all delusion? Yeah, well, here's, here's what she has to say about it. If you don't have the inner strength, this is interesting, it requires inner strength to see this, to understand that all outer appearances are a passing show, as nothing beside the great splendor inside us. You know, this is Jesus teaching about uh, all this is subject to rust and corruption and so forth. I want to put your, find your treasure in heaven, which is not subject to this impermanence. This is all a teaching about impermanence. Then she says things can look very black here indeed. I tell you, for, look at your own life. How black your own life can look some days here living in this lap of luxury because we don't understand that all this is a passing show. And so we haven't seen beyond that into this splendor that is within us. And so things look black indeed, I'm sure, at, uh, at uh, Westerbork. Here's what she says about compassion. I have broken my body like bread and shared it out among men. And why not? They were hungry and had gone without for so long. No big deal to her. It's not, I mean, that's marvelous. It's just obvious thing to do to her. Why not? And then she says about this, this selfless life. I must try to live a good and faithful life to my last breath so that those who come after me do not have to start all over again and need not face the same difficulties. She's talking in two levels here. She's talking one on the historical level, which is the most obvious one. That is, you know, Nazism is, yes, we've defeated the Nazis, but there's always a, a danger of this uh, rising again, and it certainly will. Let's not fool ourselves in one form or another. We are, we are not done with horrors and wars by any means. In fact, it may be we are facing a new period that uh, will make the Second World War look like a picnic. But in the long run, if we take a long run, the destiny of humanity is God-realization. And so each step in that, each, uh, each outburst of something like Nazism is a step backwards. That's part of the, the whole history of it all. It's not something we are going to uh, achieve tomorrow. We are, we are being dreamers and we are, and we are having a vague mysticism when we start talking about, oh, there's a planetary change of consciousness and, and we're thinking about, you know, in 20 years, everything's going to be okay again. This would, she would say, no, look reality in the eye. Look at Sarajevo. Look at Rwanda. And then tell me about this great change of planetary consciousness. We are talking about the whole history of humanity which hopefully is, <laughs> if we, if this experiment succeeds, is going to go on for thousands of more years. The, the little gains we make, the little steps each individual makes, is but a one little tiny minute step in, a, in an infinite road of steps. And so each of us, is, it's important, each of us has that sense, that role to play in the overall historical uh, travel, a trip of humanity, you might say. Eddie was very aware of history and her own role in history and her own place in history without being at least a bit 
uh, I mean, she didn't think she had a, a great place in history from the point of view of history books. But she knew what was going on. She was very, she had a great historical consciousness. And each of us, we can never forget that. We are part of the whole of humanity. We are not divorced from that history. So it's very important when she has this teaching about that she has led her life as faithfully as she could and as good as she could for our sake. So whatever little gain there is in insight and compassion, uh, you know, can be passed on. So we don't have to, we can start after reading this, maybe one little, we can't start where she is, but we can start with a little bit of understanding. It's the torch is passed on. But also, she means this in a trans-historical sense, which is uh, really the most personal sense. And that is, we don't realize it because we're not willing to look life in the eye, look suffering in the eye, uh, look reality in the eye the way Eddie was. Each of us is on transport to our own private Auschwitz. It's true. Yes, the horror of Nazism is hard because it's written on a great scale. It's horrible because of the plotting and the planning and the, uh, the, the, uh, uh intention. But each person is going to die, whether it's in a gas chamber, whether it's in your bed. All of us are going to be subject to old age, to disease, to aches and pains. We think, oh, those poor Jews, they all want, you know, an Auschwitz and all that. We never stop to look what's in store for us in this form. Yes, indeed. We all live under a sense of death. So her message is not just uh, although it comes out of this situation, which gives it this tremendous authority and power. Her message is for each of us, how each of us is going to deal with our own impermanence, our own growing old, our own suffering, and our own death. Is all that going to make us terrified and bitter and fearful? Are we going to... Uh, uh, succumb to the advice Job's friends gave him when he was stricken with all these diseases and plagues, curse God and die? Or are we going to be able to uh, see through all this, see through all that personal suffering and so forth, what Eddie saw? This splendor inside us that makes all this <coughs> just seem like a passing show. 